words on water. Five years, Hawk has provided innovative solutions in water quality analysis. Their instruments, services, software, and reagents are used to ensure the quality of water in a variety of industries in more than 100 countries. Hawk's mission is to make water analysis better, faster, simpler, greener, and more informative. For more information, visit hawk.com. Welcome to Words on Water, a podcast from the Water Environment Federation. This is the host, Travis Loop. Going to be talking about nutrients today, and I'm very excited to be uh, joined by two folks from Hawk. I have Steve Myers and Bob Dubkowski. They are application development managers. Steve, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Bob, how's it going for you? Fantastic. Beautiful day here in Colorado. All right, good. Uh, well, I'm I'm really excited for this conversation. It's a topic that has not been explored on the podcast before, so uh, looking forward to bringing it to our our listeners. Um, big picture, I guess. Uh, how is the focus on nutrients and wastewater treatment at the moment? How would you How would you describe it? Yeah, so I'll jump in on that one, um, Travis. So describe it as a, a hot topic still. Uh, it, it's it's been around for a while. Um, nutrients, of course, have you know they've discovered that these are um, contaminants that can lead to eutrophication of our of our waters or or other uh, deleterious effects. But uh, some some parts of the company uh, country could obviously consider this old news, right? So it's been around. A lot of plants have been out there treating nutrients, reducing them in their effluent streams. Um, and there's also a wide range of, you know, nutrient removal. Some consider ammonia reduction, nutrient removal, even though nitrogen is still in the water at that point. Um, and by nutrients, I guess we want to specifically highlight, we're talking about nitrogen and phosphorus in the water, right? So, um, but yeah, total nitrogen removal, total phosphorus removal. Sometimes plants have just one that they have to achieve. Sometimes it's going to be both, um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely something that uh, is continuing to be a hot topic uh, with regards to wastewater treatment. And, and WEF obviously has their, their a whole symposium dedicated to this that they run every other year. Right, right. <clears throat> Bob, Bob, what's your take on kind of the, the current focus on nutrients and, and, and the wastewater sector? Yeah, it's, it's funny because Steve brought up the, the thought of old news maybe for some parts of the country. And yeah, while some plants might be conventionally removing nutrients for the last 15, 20 years, they're not resting on those laurels. They're investigating new processes that are more energy efficient or more carbon efficient. And so while there's a lot of old news involved with nutrient removal, there's a lot of new breakthrough research that's happening as well at these locations that have been doing it for years. Hmm. Yeah, and I'd add on to that, that the, the limits continue to go down in some areas as well, right? So where one phosphorus, one milligram per liter phosphorus in the effluent has been, you know, one of the more common uh, limits that gets rolled out initially, uh, we're seeing areas where that continues to tick down um, to lower standards mm. or lower levels. 
why do you why is nutrients a a hot topic if you will why is there so much focus on it well first off uh it's going to come down to regulation right so it's it's becoming uh widely regulated uh there's places where it's been on permits for years and years other places that are adding those as we go forward historically i guess you could say that the eastern so i look at it from the epa regions right so epa regions one through five um, that's that's going to capture the bulk of the eastern U.S. Great Lakes area. Um, that's been uh, nutrients have been uh, around for a while there, and it's gradually expanded uh, across the country. Um, but uh, yeah, regulations drive this. But uh, the regulations are there because they're based on you know hopefully based on good science um, that supports the the protection of our our waterways, and and it's commonly found that uh, with excess nutrients hitting our waterways, uh, whether those be fresh bodies of water or even some of our, you know, Gulf of Mexico, for instance, um, we can get some, some pretty negative impacts to these bodies of water with, with overloading nutrients will uh, cause what's called eutrophication to the water, which makes it more challenging for, for life to promulgate. Sure, sure. So kind of the, the increase in nutrient management at wastewater facilities is primarily being driven by regulations trying to improve local water quality? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I think it was 2016, the EPA came out and said uh, every state must create their own numeric nutrient criteria uh, to help protect those waterways. And so we're going to just see this spread across the country, state by state, uh, for those regions that maybe don't have nutrient permits yet. They're coming. Just a matter of time. Hmm. So yeah, I was really interested in this. Uh, you know, where addressing nutrients has been a standard practice, where it's been going on for some time, and where it's really ramping up. Um, you, you kind of mentioned a little bit of that, but can you guys dive into that further? Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. So, you know, we, we get a good perspective across the country in, in our roles uh, with Hawk. And um, we definitely see, you know, some trends and some established, you know, practices in, in the eastern part of the country. Uh, also around some of our more sensitive um, uh, freshwater bodies like the, uh, the Great Lakes and, um, and some of the other bodies of water like Chesapeake Bay, Puget Sound is actually rolling out some some new regulations around phosphorus right now, uh, but a lot of these um, Long Island Sound as well. A lot of these areas really trying to focus on keeping these bodies of water, you know, to meet those those EPA requirements from the Clean Water Act and be fishable, swimmable, and uh, nutrients definitely have a negative impact. We've seen this in the Great um, Hypoxic Zone, so to speak, that we have uh, that, that's been presence in the Gulf of Mexico, of course, a lot of these nutrients are, you know, nutrients by definition are fertilizers. Um, and so a lot of the contributors to this are not are going to be these non-point source contributors like uh, agriculture. Uh, but obviously where, where regulators can regulate, which is going to be the, the point source dischargers like the, the, the treatment plants, um, they're going to try and do what they can to tighten those limits and, and help protect those bodies of water as best they can. And, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What's uh, for listeners? What's the standard practice? What's the what's the way that a wastewater facility is going to remove nutrients, remove nitrogen, remove phosphorus? Just to just to start there at that kind of one on one level. 
Take it away, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, boy, standard practice <laughs> is to almost say that there isn't one. Ah. Uh, there, there are a lot of different options when it comes to nutrient removal. And so, and there's plenty of guidance, but I'd say the most common, I wouldn't say it's standard, but most common is using an activated sludge process and creating various environments for the microbes in the activated sludge to perform certain duties. So for example, you have an aeration basin that's aerobic and your activated sludge process is only aerobic. All you'll ever do is convert your ammonia to nitrate. And so you still have the nitrogen in the water, like Steve mentioned. So to get that nitrate out of the water, we have to turn it to nitrogen gas. And we do that through denitrification in an anoxic environment uh, with that same activated sludge. But we're going to have to maybe manipulate some things here to make that occur, meaning the microbes that are responsible for denitrification, they need simple carbon. And so we can't put this anoxic zone after the aeration base and there's no carbon left, no simple carbon, especially. And so then we're going to have to add some kind of carbon or we reconfigure the process to take advantage of the free carbon that's in the raw wastewater. And so that's a common thing, right? Where we'll see these anoxic and aerobic environments. And then we'll even see when we get into biological phosphorus removal that we add an anaerobic environment for the activated sludge so that the phosphate accumulating organisms or PAOs for short, they can actually release their stored phosphorus and make room if you will, so that when they're in an aerobic environment, they can then consume more phosphorus than they ate. Um, and so I'd say that's the most common uh, besides of course, always having some type of chemical treatment for phosphorus removal or as a backup. Um, but by any means there's any number of different configurations and styles and tanks and systems out there to remove nutrients, uh, which I think is a really great thing. It gives us a lot of options. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. And I was just going to say in, in most cases, you know, it's removing the, the nutrients is not a, a necessarily cheap endeavor, right? So there's usually going to be, or, or is it, you know, very simple. Um, it's usually going to take some specific, modifications to existing systems. Sometimes we can get away from, you know, large retrofits to, to go from a standard, maybe aerobic system to achieving these anoxic and anaerobic conditions that Bob is talking about. Sometimes controls and cycling of aeration and automation definitely can help. But um, depending on the type of jump the plant has to make, it can be quite the expensive and, and um, uh, I would say increase in complexity for the uh, operation staff, which they can find intimidating at times. Yeah, I wanted to dive into this area of costs uh, because I, I understand that it can it can come with quite a, a price tag to do this. Um, so what are what are some of the best ways for a utility for a facility to decrease their cost for nutrient removal? Right. So, you know, I'll take a quick stab at this. You know, what, one of the things, the adages that we at Hawks sure like to uh, promote is that you can't really improve something you can't measure, right? And, and with these uh, systems, and yes, there's going to come in many different forms, and there's new technologies that are being investigated to, to make these, you know, more efficient on the costs as well. But uh, using your existing system, sometimes um, getting a bet better visibility, gaining better visibility to that process uh, is all it can take to make some meaningful changes. So 
uh, we look at this as a bit of a continuum. Um, ad hoc, you know, we do, uh, you know, our, our slogan is be right. And, and the idea here is we want to provide accurate, reliable data in some way, shape or form that can, that can inform uh, meaningful decision making for plant staff. And yes, that can start in the compliance lab with grab samples, running tests in the lab, um, and getting an idea of what's going on. Now, this is happening day in and day out at wastewater plants. They have to do this, or I should say water resource recovery facilities as well, like the new nomenclature there. That's right. But this is being done day in and day out to meet the compliance testing. Uh, but sometimes, you know, there's a lag here. Drop the sample off, wait a day, maybe a few hours if you're lucky, and get some results. Uh, so we like to see this progress towards maybe having a, having a process dedicated lab where operations staff themselves are empowered to take grab samples, run them to the lab, get a quick test, uh, get a quick result, and make an informed decision. And of course, this can uncover you know great opportunities for cost savings. One quick example: um, I've seen some plants that are looking at their aeration expenses, right? And they, uh, as Bob was saying, you, you you just throw enough air in an aeration tank, and you're going to get nitrification. But the question comes: When is that nitrification actually being achieved? Let's take for example a plug flow system which is very common out there, um, and you're blasting it with aeration, how do you know when your ammonia is completely converted over to nitrate? Is it halfway through, three quarters of the way through? Ideally, you want it to be near the end, so you're actually using the right amount of air. But a lot of plants might take a look at their aeration basin and profile that. By profile, that means take samples at various locations throughout their basin um, and actually see what their ammonia levels are doing as it makes its way through there. And then they can make informed decisions around, hey, do we have volume to apply to anoxic conditioning or are we recycling too much anoxic back into, or too much um, air, um, uh, dissolved oxygen back into an anoxic zone? And of course, this obviously leads to the next jump, which is online monitoring, where we've decided, hey, this specific parameter makes sense in this location to keep an eye on it and going to an online instrument really takes a massive leap in that data density that the plant is able to leverage and make decisions based on it. Sure. And what's the role of, of increasing reliability then? Or is, is that with efficiency and costs all kind of intertwined? Yeah, I think reliability is more like resiliency, right? Mm. Where, let's face it, we're microbe ranchers in wastewater <laughs> treatment, right? We're trying to keep them happy, trying to keep them fed, trying to grow, and hopefully they, through all that process, remove our nitrogen, remove our phosphorus, remove our carbon. And so how do we make that resilient? It's a living, breathing thing. And so we're gonna have to increase that reliability by making sure we operate the way it was intended to be operated, meaning, Every activated sludge process is designed around this concept of sludge retention time, SRT, or mean cell residency time, MCRT. Basically, how long does an organism stay in the treatment process uh, before it gets wasted? So typically this is calculated in days. This is a fundamental parameter, and this not only defines how the process works, it defines what microbes are present. Right? This is very, very fundamental, but when we get and apply it at the plant level, it gets watered down. And, oh, that's difficult. Well, we only pull one grab sample a day, so we're just going to try to shoot for a fixed mixed liquor suspended solids number for this month. 
and then next month we have a different number, and then the next month we have a different number. When in reality, mixed liquor numbers have little to do with sludge retention time. And so we've decoupled a fundamental principle that tells us what microbes are present and increases reliability. We've decoupled it from operations. And so we need to get back. And there's a lot of us in the industry talking about this saying, listen, we've got online sensors like Steve mentioned that can measure TSS online in real time. We should be able to apply an SRT controller that will do this work for us. We just have to make the decisions of what the set points are going to be. And therefore we increase the reliability, um, not only, you know, for most plants, but in some plants that have crazy temperature swings, they can struggle with phosphorus removal, where a large spike in temperature, say in a springtime, can cause GAOs, glycogen accumulating organisms, to overpopulate and outcompete the PAOs. And so we lose biological phosphorus removal. Uh, well, a key strategy there is when that temperature swing occurs, the answer is to drop the SRT to the minimum you can to maintain nitrification. It's scary. It's like jumping off a cliff. <laughs> nobody does it, but we know it works. And so I think the reason nobody does it is there's no reliable system that they're comfortable with allowing it to control that process. When in reality, there are those controllers in the market today. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to increase reliability, if nothing else, simply by switching from fixed mix liquor to SRT controls. Yeah, and to, to dovetail a little bit into that, it, Bob makes an important point, and that's taking this next step, um, you know, does require a good understanding of, you know, what, why we're doing what we're doing. And wastewater operations is definitely an evolving uh, profession right now. There's, it's going to become more complex. It's going to become more data-driven. It's going to become, you know, balancing acts. A lot of the time to Bob's point, you know, in, in the past, having a long SRT, having plenty of air usually did the job for most of these, you know, non-nutrient removing permits. Well, we, we add nutrients on here and you got these competing tug of war uh, priorities with the SRT. Like Bob said, they can, it can be at odds with, uh, you know, different processes in the plant. Um, and then we have to be on board with the idea of leveraging the data and using that data and closing that loop with not just monitoring, not just event detection, but also leveraging that data to make informed decisions and even automating many of these decisions. Um, as Bob is highlighting here from an SRT perspective, that's one that's one uh, area that Hawk has had some experience in. And we, we've also got some experience with uh, phosphorus removal and managing the, the chemical usage, which is, you know, goes towards reliability, this resilience, but also massively um, improving some of the, the O&M budgets that, you know, go to purchasing chemicals to help uh, with some of this treatment. And um, it is it is quite the balancing act that uh, the, the, waste, the, the wastewater treatment plant operator of now and of the future is going to have to take on to themselves as they continue along this trajectory, because it's not going to get, I, uh, it's not going to get easier, I should say. We might be able to um, help close some of those gaps, but it's going to continue to be a, prod, uh, a profession where we really have to understand what's going on and, and make the best use of the data that we have. Sure. And they're generating. Yeah. Uh, well, you guys both have hit on, hit on this, uh, set up this question a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about the role of technology uh, in, in nutrient 
management going forward, you know, that our digital world is just accelerating around us all the time, uh, especially given a, a kick by this coronavirus situation and, and people uh, maybe looking for even more digital solutions and remote solutions and all that stuff. So could you talk about the the role of, of technology, um, you know, now and, and going forward in, in that it'll play in nutrient removal? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. So it, we're seeing more and more of the topic of data and data management comes up and leveraging that data and getting the good data, getting reliable data and not being overwhelmed by the data, right? So data, 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 it's all over the place. Um, and it, and it's, and, and for a good reason, um, we generate a, a lot of a lot of information at these wastewater plants. We're talking about uh, you know SCADA systems historians just being full of of trends and and uh, um, monitoring and, and sensors and the outputs from them. Um, and it's there's going to be some progression in this arena where we can see the industry talking about leveraging you know computer learning, machine learning. Um, creating digital twins of treatment plants. And this is all going to rely, these models all have to rely on getting accurate and reliable information into these models so that you get good results out of them. And that, that comes down to the question relating to, you know, the instruments and sensors and data points or data generators within this market. And can they be remotely troubleshooted? Do we have visibility to the health of these instruments? And how do we leverage, you know, this cloud environment to um, empower the remote workforce of the future that might have to do a little bit more troubleshooting from home, at least in the short term, as we're experiencing right now. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that uh, that plays a big role in, alongside the the actual progressions with the technologies uh, that we're finding out there as it relates to granular sludge and, and anamox bacteria and helping reduce costs and these more efficient treatment processes, which always come with a little bit more control requirements and close watching of the system to carefully guide them to do the jobs that they're set up to do. So I see that becoming something that you can't run away from. Uh, it, it's not going to work with the daily grab samples uh, for long. Uh, sure. Uh, Bob, do you have any thoughts on technology and, and where uh, things might be headed when it comes to nutrient removal? Yeah, so as an industry, and I can say this as a licensed operator, we are not prone to taking technology and running with it in this industry, right? We're slow to adapt. We know how things work by taste, touch, and feel. Think of it more as an art than a science. And so it's hard to adapt to some of the new technologies. But I think there are definitely some breakthroughs here that are going to help bridge that. You know, and Steve brought up digital twins. That's definitely been a hot topic lately. Um, and I'll put a plug in. If you're going to WefTech this fall, there's an entire session, technical session, interactive on digital twins that I'm uh, one of the moderators for. So please come and check that one out. And uh, if you're not able to attend WEF this year in person, there are some uh, remote opportunities to attend these technical sessions as well. So keep an eye out for that. But having that option of data that's been collected from that plant being uploaded into a calibrated digital twin where an operator can go and say, well, what if we tried this and take this tank offline? What if we changed our RAS rate 
to this? How does that impact my process? And to be able to do that in a virtual environment where they're not causing any damage to the infrastructure, <laughs> I think that's going to be huge as not only an operations training tool, but also really allows operators to get more comfortable with the technology and adapting to technologies. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Um, this has been very, very informative for me. I'm sure it has been for folks listening. Um, I appreciate all the knowledge and perspective. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you both very much, Steve and Bob. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Travis. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is was- Words on water.